as I've just said in my prayer, we're going to actually be looking at a very familiar passage this morning from John 10. And um, actually, it's quite good to come back to the familiar time and time again, isn't it? Especially as for the next two Sundays, while I'm off sunning myself in Mallorca, you'll be digging into Amos. So let's do something familiar this morning. Now, I've called this morning's talk Gateway to Life. And I thought, well, we're going to be focusing on sheep and the shepherd and some lambs today. So what better than a few nice pictures of those little lambs up there? They're great, aren't they? Look at that one. Over there, look at its little face. Isn't it cute? <laughs> Who's feeling like that this morning? Anyone? Oh, Margaret, great. Well, let's hope that by the end of this morning's preach, we're all going to be feeling a little bit more like that this morning. Now, I want you to cast your mind back a couple of months ago to Easter Sunday as well. Who was here on Easter Sunday? Quite a few of us, and the kids loved it, didn't they? They really loved it. We actually were welcoming three newborn lambs into our fold here, and it was really exciting. It was quite smelly, wasn't it? That was mainly the lambs, I think. It was quite smelly. But there was a lot of pleasure and a lot of fun to be had. And we, lots of people took loads of photos of these really cute kids with cute lambs and some cute adults as well with cute lambs. Now, when you look at these lambs here, what do you associate them with? What do you think of when you think of a lamb? What words do you think of? Maureen? Dancing. Dancing, so a bit of joy. Yeah. Yeah. Mint sauce, yeah, some people might think of mint sauce. Anything else? Spring, yeah, vitality, innocence as well, joy, all sort of positive things really, unless you're a vegetarian. Okay, and to us as believers, we always see the lamb as a really powerful symbol, don't we? It's a symbol of Jesus. It's a symbol of his innocence and being prepared to be sacrificed for us. So it's a really powerful symbol. And for us as believers to have those three lambs here on Easter Sunday was so exciting because it really reinforced that Easter message. And some of us found it rather exciting for a different reason. Now, my son Tom was here with me on that morning, and he's given me permission to tell you what his reaction was to the three lambs. He actually said, those of you that know him, he's 16 now, know that he's got quite a quirky sense of humour. And so as the lambs come prancing in, and all the little kids were getting really excited and stroking the lambs and just having lots of fun, Tom actually turned to Fraser, who was sitting there, and said with glee, Fraser oh, you're going to be sacrificing these lambs this morning. <laughs> Fraser said, no, it's not that kind of a service, Tom. We're not going to be sacrificing lambs. So be assured, we did not sacrifice any lambs. Just thought I'd like to share that with you. So this morning, we're going to take a fresh look at John 10, 1 to 18. And the reason that I felt that the Lord laid this on my heart was I wanted to look at it for two reasons. Firstly, to remind me and to remind those of us who have been believers for a long time what it should be like to live as a Christian, what our life should look like, because sometimes it doesn't always look as it should. And I really want us to focus in particular on the verse John 10.10 about abundant life and what that should mean for us as believers. And then I want to explain to those of you who are maybe new to church, new to the faith even, you might be exploring, there might be some of you here, there are some new faces. I don't know whether any of you went to our recent festival or you just feel compelled to come in and find out more about the Christian faith. I want to properly explain what it means to have life in all its fullness and what it doesn't mean. So I'm going to ask Paul, first of all, to come up without further ado and to read from the Church Bible. You'll find... Um, you'll find yeah, yes please, the Church Bible. <laughs> On page 1076. Page one. 1076, John 10, 1 to 18. Right, okay. Well, I need this. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. 
He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought, when he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow them, because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Okay, we will be looking at this passage in a little more detail, but what I really want to focus on this morning, as I've already alluded to, is John 10.10. And I want us to look at it now in three more versions, and I've actually coupled it with the verse beforehand, verse 9, just to put it in its context. So firstly, we have the Amplified, which says, The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have and enjoy life, and have it in abundance to the full, till it overflows. The message, a thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed for. And then in the authorised King James, early 17th century language, is beautiful. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now that, in whatever um, version you read it, is a wonderful promise, isn't it? Jesus came so that we can have real life, we can have it right here and right now, and it can be abundant and it can be full. Now often, I've caught myself quoting this to people without really thinking about it. I don't know if any of you have done that. sort of to pep them up, to perk them up a bit, remind people that we can have that. But I've often been reminded that it's crucial when we use this verse that we understand fully what it means and that we don't just use it as a glib, try off the cuff quotation, that we ourselves really grasp what it means and that we're prepared to explain to others what that means. We don't want anyone going around thinking, I need to put a big brave face on all of this, do I? I need to pretend that life is so fantastic because I'm a Christian. That's not real, authentic Christian living, is it? So I want to ask some questions of you before we carry on. Firstly, I want to ask, who in this room has been a Christian for, say, 20 years or more? If you have, put your hand up, right up. Okay, now keep your hands up if you can answer yes to this question. During the last 20 years, has your life been smooth and problem-free? Have you ever had moments of boredom, frustration, stress, grief and irritation? Put them up if you've had, put them up again if you've ever had moments of boredom, frustration, stress, grief, irritation, depression. It's interesting to see them go up, go down, go up again, isn't it? Okay, who has recently become a Christian, say in the last few years? 
There's a number in here, which is great. Now, keep your hands up. If you've recently become a Christian, have all your problems been sorted out? Keep your hands up if they're all sorted out. Everything. Interesting, isn't it? So what does that show us in the light of John 10.10? Well, I think as we come to faith, we really readily grasp, actually, we're saved. We have eternal life. That is wonderful. We couldn't ask for more. And we can really grasp onto that. But sometimes we wonder, well, where on earth is this abundant life right now? How do I access that? What does it actually mean? In order to think a little bit more deeply about abundant life, we're going to look at what life itself actually means. And um, I want to look at it in the original Greek. For me, my background was as a translator, so I know that actually when we come to translate things from one language into our own mother tongue, often we can't find that right word, that mot juste, if you like. It's not necessarily there. We can be scrabbling around for it, and we can find a word that does convey some of the sense of what we want to say from the original language, but it doesn't always completely hit the spot. And often translators then have to use a context to make it make more sense. And so if we go back to the original language, we find that our word life actually has three different root words in Greek. And we're going to look at them this morning. We've got them up already. We're going to look at bios, we're going to look at psyche, and we're going to look at zoe and what they mean. Because when they are translated into our language, they all say life, but they all have slightly different connotations and slightly different meanings. Okay, the first word we're going to look at is bios. And you can see that's where biology, biological, is derived from. And so bios, what that actually means is it means our physical life here, the duration of our life, our lifespan. And it also means what we need to keep that life going. So the physical things, the material things, such as clothing and food and shelter, warmth, protection, all those things to keep us having a good long life. And I'd say in the West, we're actually really focused on that, aren't we? Keeping ourselves well, keeping ourselves healthy, doing all those things to keep that lifespan going. And of course, that's important. We want to have good, long, healthy lives. But it's very much life as we know it in terms of quantity, what we can measure. And I think for us as rational beings in many ways, we like to measure things, don't we? We like to say they had a good, long life. But there's also those that have a very good, short life, aren't there? So... That's really what BIOS means. And I want to give you one example of where BIOS is used in the New Testament. It's used many times, but this is from Luke 8, and it's Jesus telling the parable of the sower. We'll come on to the verse in a moment. But basically, for those of you who are not that familiar with the parable of the sower, in a nutshell, Jesus is talking about a sower who goes out with his seed and he strews it around everywhere, and it lands in different places. And sometimes it lands and it's just trampled underfoot, and then the birds of the air come, and they pick it off and they feed it, and it's gone. At other times, the seed is strewn, and it may be that it falls on rock, and it shrivels up there, and it withers, and it dies. It can't take root. At other times, it's strewn, and it may fall among thorns, and weeds, and it may be choked and stifled, and again, it can't grow, it can't really flourish. But Jesus is saying, it's really fantastic, it's really wonderful, when that seed finds the fertile soil, when it finds a really good soil, and it can bed right down, and it can establish a root system, and it can grow, and it grows up, and it sprouts, and it thrives, and it flourishes. He goes on a little later to explain to those listening what that means. He explains that the seed is actually the word of God, what we actually put out there. God's word and where it falls is really important. And in 8.14, he says this, The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, of this bios, of the physical. And so they never grow into maturity. So that's the way he's using it in that context. And he's saying that if we are so consumed by the cares and even the delights of our physical, our material life here on earth, well then, that's not going to be enough. 
ultimately that is not enough. That is not what life in all its fullness is all about. Because often those thorns and those weeds will come and they will choke and they will squeeze and we realise that that alone isn't it. That's not the answer. So that's an example of bios. We're now going to have a look at the second word, which is psyche. Obviously we get the word psychological from that, psychology. And here, when we read about psyche in New Testament Greek, not that I read New Testament Greek, I hasten to add, but if you do, you will realise that psyche is referring to the psychological life of the human soul. It's all about our will, our emotion, what we choose, our mind. And it's actually used in the New Testament a lot more frequently than bios is. Because actually the writer realises that, or the writers realise that actually life is so much more than just bios. And so they use psyche more. Because where bios is the fact that we were born to be who we are, Psyche is actually who we choose to be. It characterises us. It is our character formation. It's our choices. What we do in our, with and in our mind, what we do in and with our will. So in a way, if you think of bias as the whole lifespan, as the time that we're here, you can think of psyche in terms of the quality of that life, the choices that we make and how we decide to build our character. It's about values, it's about commitments, it's about, I suppose, how we choose, and this is pre-becoming Christians as well, how we choose to spend our time on this mortal coil. And an example of psyche in the New Testament can be found in Matthew 16. If you could just put that up for me. I think we've got that. And I've got various versions here. Now, at this time, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's trying to impress on them the actual cost of following him what they need to surrender, what they need to give up with their psyche, with their own comfort and the choices that they make. And he says this, If you hang on to your life, psyche, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In the Amplified, For whoever is bent on saving his temporal life, his comfort, his security here, his psyche, shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, shall find it. The message, blunt as ever, Eugene Peterson says this, self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? What could you ever trade your psyche, your mind, your will, your emotion, your choices for? It's not worth it, is it? So in this sense, Jesus is saying... We need to be willing to surrender all of that. We need to be willing to make a daily choice. Not in a sackcloth and ashes kind of way. It's not saying that. But in a, I'm going to choose Jesus today over the ways of the world. I'm not going to conform to the pattern of this world. Just because the world is telling me this is how you should live and this is what you should do. I'm not going to conform to that because I know that Jesus wants me to surrender that and follow where he might lead. And that might be an easy and straightforward and comfortable path, but it might not. Okay, so we've had a little look. I'm sure there's an awful lot more that could be said about those words, but we've had a little look at bios, at the basics and the basis of physical life. And we've had a little look at psyche, about our soul life, our characters, our choices, our will. Now we're going to explore the third word, which is what it's all about for us, and it's Zoe. That lovely word, Zoe. Zoe is what it is all about. Because it is only Zoe life, and it is mentioned time and time again in the New Testament. It's only Zoe life that really reflects God. And it is the life that can be ours. If you haven't found that Zoe life yet, you can have it. It's accessible to anyone. It can be yours when you cross over from simply living the biological, the lifespan, my life between birth and death, when you cross over from just simply thinking about the psychological into a deep relationship with Jesus, into just accepting him and then growing that relationship with him. The Zoe life that Jesus is speaking about in 1010 is actually the life, the very breath of life that was breathed into Adam at creation. 
it's the same. And we know from the story that Adam forfeited that, that he was disobedient. And that life in all its fullness, in that sense, here on earth, wasn't there anymore. But actually Jesus came so we could experience it, even if not in the material, in the physical, in the spirit. And we have to remember that each one of us here has bios life. We've all been born of a mother, haven't we? We've all been born of a mother. And yet when we're born again, we can have the Zoe life, each one of us. And it is open to all. Death can't stop it. It goes on and on and on. I think it's also important to say that while Zoe life does characterise the life of God and the life we can have. God also really wants to share it with us. It's put out there. It's accessible. It's available to anyone. I accepted it. It's available to me. If it's available to me, it's available to you. And that alone is abundant life. I think sometimes when we come to faith and we accept our salvation, can take a while for us really to grasp the fact that we can have that life in all its fullness as well. And sometimes we have to keep going back and saying, Lord, I feel I'm not in that place anymore. I don't have that abundant life at the moment. Help me. And to keep going back to it. I want to revisit John 10.10 and read it like this. I have come, Jesus says, I have come that they may have Zoe and may have Zoe abundantly. When you next read it, remember that. It is Zoe. And I believe this morning, I felt the Lord say to me that there will be people here who feel that they are really still searching. You may even feel, yeah, I've made a commitment to the Lord, but I'm really still searching for that good life, if you like, with him, that deepness, that fulfillment. And I believe we're all born seekers, we're all searching. This is one of my favourite verses from the Old Testament. I think I'll put it up. Ecclesiastes, I love Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also planted eternity in men's hearts and minds. It's a divinely implanted sense of purpose, working through the ages which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. Yet so that men cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In the NLT, slightly more precise. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. You know, for me, reading that, that is so true. Because I never felt, I think from a very young age, that bios and psyche were enough for me. I didn't know what they were then. But I had that sense that actually life as I knew it, didn't really cut the mustard. It wasn't quite enough. And it was only when I came to faith that I realised that God alone can satisfy that yearning and fill that void in me. And I still come back to that now. There's times where I think spiritually, I go a little bit off track, a bit at a tangent and stuff, and I have to remind myself that I want, if I want that abundant life, I've got to keep coming back to him. Because only God alone is going to satisfy my search for meaning here. Only God alone is going to enable me to live the life that he wants me to have and one that is going to be ultimately very fulfilling. And also, I think in Ecclesiastes, the reason I like it is that it says so much about the mystery, doesn't it? That actually, while we're here on earth, there is a lot of mystery. There's a lot that I don't understand. There's a lot that I read in the Bible that I don't fully understand. And I may thrash it out with someone and I may get a bit of a better understanding but I don't fully understand everything I don't fully understand everything that happens in my life in the life of my family I don't fully understand what's going on in the world right now there's so much tragedy so many trials and tribulations and you do wonder where it's all heading I don't understand all of that there's mystery but also I know it's okay I can still experience my fullness of life deep down with God in amongst all of that mystery Many things can rob us of that. And that has been my experience even as a Christian. There are many things that can crowd in, happen to us, adversely affect us, that steal that fullness of life from us. Never my salvation, 
but my abundant life at the time. There are many things that can come and choke out the life. And my prayer for me personally, and for you as well, is that as we deepen and mature in our faith, those times will be less and less. And we will be living as radiant Christians, reflecting that abundant life more and more to those around us. But let's have a bit of a look at what can choke out, what can strangle out that abundant life. Now, in the passage that we read, we saw that Jesus was stressing dangers, wasn't he? He was painting a pastoral scene at the time of the shepherd. There would have been a big stone sheepfold with a gate, and the shepherd would be there at the gate, making sure the sheep got safely in, making sure they came out safely, looking out for them, looking out for predators, just basically guarding them, protecting them, enabling them to survive and to thrive. And of course, the shepherd's key, absolutely key. The sheep are only going to survive and thrive if the shepherd is going to be there, if he is leading them, if he is protecting them, if he is watching over them, and if he's able and willing and ready to fend off anyone who may come along and try and rob them or destroy them. And it's an illustration that we can apply to us right now. We just need to keep our eyes on our shepherd. Because there are all sorts of dangers out there, you know, lurking, preventing us from finding that abundance of life. And there are many people that live out in the world that don't yet know Jesus as well. And they feel that their life is just that time, that bios, if you like, spent between birth and death. And that is it. I'm so glad I'm not in that place anymore. Because that's pretty bleak, isn't it? There may be joys, there may be comforts, there may be pleasure in that time, but ultimately, it's a pretty bleak place to be. And I think for many people, they can respond with all sorts of reactions. It's like a whole spectrum of reactions, if you like. So you'll find some who live life totally to the full on their terms, in the way they think they're living it to the full, hedonism, pleasure-seeking, thrills, all of that sort of thing. Get your adrenaline going. Just find something to make life worth living. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where people think, actually, what's it all about? What's the point? They can tip over into a feeling of everything's futile. They're nihilistic. They're depressed. They've got nothing worth living for. And, of course, there's a whole range of responses in between. But we don't have to have any of those responses because we can hold on to the truth that life is not only eternal, but we can have it right now as well. But if we're honest, and I've been honest with you, I haven't always felt I'm living that life. And there's a whole host of reasons, aren't there? And I know that for many of you, and for some of you who might be listening as well, that you're going through really tough times. You're worried about loved ones. You're grieving. Your family's broken down. Your health is not very good. You've got physical, psychological problems at the moment. That can be tough to find that abundant life then. And for others of us, and I think this happens to me at times, I just take my eyes off Jesus and find that all the insidious things of life creep in and they become priorities for a while. And I have to keep bringing my gaze back, disciplining myself to do that. Often it is insidious, and before we know it, we're sat here on a Sunday morning and we're feeling, actually, I feel a bit shortchanged. I feel a bit like I'm going through the motions. Is this what it's about? Am I the only one that's ever had that? No? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> but Jesus is clear in John 10. He says, sheep, don't take your eyes off the shepherd. If you do, you're lost. Not forever, but you're lost for a while. And I don't want to be in that place where I wander off and get lost. I want to be close to the shepherd. I want to be looking at him, and I want that life right next to him. I wonder what it could be for you at times, what it could be for me that causes us to go off. Sometimes it is pleasure-seeking, thrill-seeking, wanting just to have a good time. And of course, that's absolutely fine. We're not Puritans, are we? We don't have to live a really rigid, stoic life. It's fine. Sometimes it's the material. It's the sort of getting on in life things that become really important to us. And we can get so hooked on them and sort of full of that 
that actually take our eyes off for a while. Sometimes, and I did want to say a little bit about this because I notice it a lot with our young people. I've got three older teenagers, and I'm not talking about them particularly, but like friendship groups and, and yeah, many sort of who are younger and sometimes older find it really hard in this society because they are bombarded with image after image of celebrities and people who are really successful, so-called successful in worldly terms. And they find that really, really hard. And I think for a lot of them, and we need to be able to support them in this, we need to be able to show them that that is not real life. For a lot of them, they then start to feel really rubbish about themselves. They start to feel, I can't measure up to that. I don't look like that. I haven't got that amazing success. I can't dance like that. I can't sing like that. I can't... Sometimes these celebrities don't even have anything going for them. I don't really understand it. But they seem to think, you know, there's something amazing. And often... Years later, these same people will be dragged down, won't they, by the media as well, especially social media and things like that. And they're slated and they lose their celebrity or they lose, I don't know, they lose their appeal. But I think, and I think we really need to look out for our young people in particular, for their mental health, so, and really teach them what abundant life is so that they're not constantly looking to the things that they're being bombarded with. It's a real danger out there, and to some of us older ones as well. Can really compare ourselves and think actually I fall short it's not a good thing I do have to say that when I was younger I did have my own idols if you like my sort of pin-ups Bay City Rollers anyone remember them <laughs> I did like the Bay City Rollers and I was also for those of you who know me quite well you know I'm quite into sci-fi I do like sort of a good sci-fi film or book and um, when I was younger I liked Star Trek a lot I still like it now I like Star Trek films, but I like the really corny old ones. Can anyone remember who played Captain Kirk then? Yeah. William Shatner, yeah. He was a bit of a pin-up, wasn't he? did like William Shatner. But I came across a quote of his recently, he's quite an old guy now, obviously, and he's probably summing up his life and thinking about it, and this is what Captain Kirk says, William Shatner. To me, it sounds quite Ecclesiastes, I think that's why I like it. He says this, what have I done? I've blundered my way through life. So I have my picture on the wall. The minute I die, that picture will start to yellow and fade and eventually be gone, blown in the wind and become part of the molecular structure of something else. These things we see as success, they're non-accomplishments. It's quite Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Blown in the wind. He's saying, actually, yeah, I've had all this money and wealth and fame. When I'm gone, I'm gone. I hope. William Shatner's sake that he finds abundant life now I don't know where he is faith wise maybe you could all go away and pray for William Shatner <laughs> I don't know but you know I just thought actually that's really sad but really honest as well so there's so many things that masquerade as life givers things that we're tempted by things that we're lured by that we think actually yeah there's life and then we find that we've been robbed it's not really life Ultimately, we know there's got to be more. So be warned with all of this. Keep your eye on the shepherd. Do not be lured away by the temptations of this world. So you're saying, all right, that's all very well, but how am I going to go about actually having it right now? How am I going to apply that to my life? Jesus is promising it. In fact, abundance or fullness of life in the Greek is perison, which means beyond all expectation, superfluous, amazingly, so much that you just can't quantify it. That is the life that you can have. It's going to be better than you ever imagine. But we don't want to go down the route of prosperity gospel here, do we? We don't want to look at it like, actually, my life's going to be fantastic. I'm going to have this, I'm going to have that. And if I just become a Christian, well, yeah, it's all going to be sorted. We know that abundant life, crucially and firstly, is everlasting life. It starts the moment we accept Jesus and it goes on and on. And we know that no one can take that from us. But Jesus is also saying you can have it right now. Now, you mentioned Austin earlier. And to me, he is a great example of somebody who has actually materially and physically prospered since coming to faith. In fact, I think it took him a while to come to faith. He first of all, if, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago or at the festival, Austin... Um, was a local guy who was homeless and living down on Veer Island. 
and this was about nine years ago, he had nothing apart from a drink and drug addiction and a lot of sadness in his life, a lot of regret, a lot of grief. And yet Austin stood up here a couple of weeks ago and was able to preach to us and is now at New Wine. And he has prospered materially, physically, if you like. He's now clean and healthy. He's now well. But what he would say as well is his, the Zoe life that matters. That is what is flourishing in him, and that is what you see in him. And he is able to help others now out of addiction, out of depression, out of the bad place that they have been. He's able to give back, and that is what Zoe life is. If we just focus, though, on what happened to Austin now being actually clean and now being you know, financially a lot better off and able to wear nice clothes and able to eat and all of those things, then we're really shortchanging what John 10.10 really means. Because right. it's not about that. God is never totally concerned about our physical and our material. If we prosper, it's a byproduct, and it's a wonderful byproduct. And I believe that we all should be helping one another with that that we do actually want to prosper in the material sense in coming, especially if we come out of a chaotic background. We do want to see people in debt or living a life that is really physically and materially hard. Of course we need to be there for each other. But Jesus' priority is spiritual. It's about our relationship with him. And it makes me think that if at times, and maybe you at times, sit there thinking, I'm a little bit of a disgruntled Christian at the moment, a bit cross or frustrated. Do you know what? Because my life seems full of challenges. My life is not that easy. And I can't really work out a way forward just at this moment. It reminds me that Jesus never promised me that. He never promised me a life without hardship or stress or irresolution. In fact, later on in John, he says, in the world you have tribulation and trials and distress and frustration. It doesn't mean we have to have that, but we have to be prepared that we may have it. And I'm just going to finish by giving us a few examples of people who I believe were able to have that Zoe life, that life of the spirit, that deep-seated joy, that deep-seated peace and comfort, even when going through the toughest of times. And actually, as I look around, I spot people and I think, hmm, they could have done a testimony. They could have done a testimony because there's plenty of you here this morning. I want to look first at the Apostle Paul. Now, we know that he went through so many countless trials and tribulations, often in prison, beaten, horrendous things. This is what he says in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. Then it goes on to say this. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We, know, we own nothing, yet we have everything. He knew that joy. He knew that Zoe life. I want to be like that. I don't want to go through that, but I want to be like that. And then Matthew Henry. Some of you may have heard of Matthew Henry. He was a well-known pastor and Bible commentator back in the late 17th, early 18th century. And he died at the age of 52, which wasn't a right long old life. I suppose it wasn't too bad back then. But actually, he'd had a terrible family experience. He'd lost his first wife and three of his children, which, again, wasn't hugely uncommon then, but just as devastating. And he could have complained and complained on his deathbed that the fact that he was going and he'd had such a rough ride. But this is what he says. He says it to a friend, and his friend apparently was somebody who would go around and take down the sayings of people on their deathbeds. 
It's rather a nice job to have. But anyway, it must have been quite interesting. He says this. You have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. What did he to say? His life was pleasant and comfortable. How on earth was he able to say that? Only through experiencing Zoe life. The next example I want to give you, I want to do without being too emotional. <laughs> it's an amazing one, actually, and it comes... The reason I feel a little bit emotional about it is, is um, it's a conversation that I have with my mum recently. And my mum, and she won't mind me saying this, and I know she'll listen to me on this recording later, so I've got to be careful what I say. She won't mind me saying that she does not share my Christian faith. She is very respectful of my faith. And um, she, in fact, by looking after one of my kids, enables me to work here and to come along this morning and preach. She's very supportive, but she sees things slightly differently to me. She did grow up in the church um, as, a, as a young girl, and she was talking to me. We got onto the subject of Billy Graham, and she says she remembers back in the 50s when Billy Graham was over, um, and there were big crusades up in London, and my mum's from London. And um, she said she found it interesting at the time that she saw those, especially who were older around her, many came to faith, of course, through Billy Graham at that time. But she said, and this is with no disrespect to Billy Graham, because he was doing what he was meant to be doing. He was out there sowing the seed. He was preaching the word. She said that while she saw many go on and continue to be Christians, she also saw a number fall away. And she felt that they had been very overcome with the emotion and um, they'd made a commitment. But then she said, and this is what really got me, she said, they didn't really get what faith was all about. She said, they didn't really get it because they'd wake up the next morning and they'd find that life was the same as it was the day before in many ways, that they still had the same challenges and troubles and problems with their kids or they were unemployed or whatever. And so they felt disillusioned because they thought faith was some sort of magic wand and if they accepted Jesus, then everything else would be fine. And then, and this is what got me, she went on to recite a hymn to me, Word Perfect. She wrote it down for me later, I'm going to read it to you. She said, God doesn't promise everything's going to be all right, but this is what he promises. So, what God has promised, God hath not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labour, light for the way. Grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. I just thought that was beautiful. And the fact that she was just able to recite that puts me to shame when I struggle to recite so many things. And I thought I'd have a little bit of a look at this Annie Johnson Flint, or Flint Johnson. I think I've got it the wrong way around there. I think she's actually... doesn't matter, does it? She's Flint Johnson or Johnson Flint. Um, and her story was a really tough one. So she hadn't just written that out of nothing. She'd actually lost both her parents very young. She was wheelchair-bound. She'd had crippling arthritis. And in those days, as a young woman, meant that she was really good for nothing in many ways for the world around her. I think, actually, she had trained as a teacher but then couldn't even work because she was wheelchair-bound. But her faith never, ever faltered. And there are many, many poems and hints that I've come across that she's written. And actually, you can tell that she is someone that experienced Zoe life, life with God in all its fullness, in spite of her hardships. Now, the examples that I've given you are from long ago, from the first century, the 18th and the early 20th. And yet, as I've already said, I can look around and see men and women here who can boast of that Zoe life. I just see it radiating out of them, even when they go through a tough time. In fact, I believe we've all got it at different times. We all want to have it all the time, don't we? 
but I do believe that we can have it all the time. And I've asked somebody who I know fairly well and have stood with fairly well over the last few years who has come to faith fairly recently to come up and to give her testimony, to give a bang up to date story, really, about how she has experienced that fullness of life, that Zoe life, in amongst her trials and struggles. So I'm going to ask Chris Sparks to come up. Yeah. Feels a bit like Chris Sparks, this is your life. <laughs> Hi, it's incredible because Rebecca and I didn't know what, you, what each other were going to say this morning and um, <coughs> it totally tied in, didn't it? And God's got a funny way of doing that. Yeah, so it's uh, really apt. Anyway, so this is my story. Um, I started coming to church around seven years ago, having moved from London to be with my daughter and grandchildren. And in the 70s, I lived in Los Angeles with my musician husband, Ian. During that time, I lived a life of total excess, indulgence and selfishness, which then went on to become an addiction to cocaine and alcohol. I was leading a pretty immoral life. The marriage broke up and I had a breakdown and spent many years in and out of hospital and having therapy. Eventually, I met my second husband, Steve, and the marriage also fell apart, and again, I was alone. During the time, I had been coming to church, listening to talks based on the Word of God and reading the Bible. I very reluctantly realized that there was still an element of dishonesty, shame, guilt, and hypocrisy in my life that had to be addressed. I knew that I had to confess to God and my friends in the church or leave. The response was the opposite of what I was expecting. I was overwhelmed by their, their attitude towards me. It was non-judgmental and forgiving and I was shown the way Jesus would welcome me back with love, compassion and understanding. I was reminded of the story of the prodigal son and how he was welcomed back with open arms by his father. From that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit begin to work in me, and although it was a time of emotional pain and self-control, I was supported by the church with love and prayers. It was challenging, but my attitude to life changed considerably. God had shown me his love, mercy, and forgiveness. And then around last August, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I was in complete shock. Chemo was every three weeks, and the first week after chemo was always pretty bad. However, despite this, and the church can confirm this, I was filled with happiness and mm. joy, which could have only come from God. Absolutely. <laughs> I was incredibly supported by the people in my village and, of course, this church family. I have had continual prayer visits, food, cards and flowers, and have never felt so loved and admit enjoyed all of the attention. <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways. After three chemos, I was told the tumours had shrunk enough for me to have the tumours removed, and the relief was enormous, and yet another sign of God's healing within me. It was a major operation, but my recovery was fine, and I went on to have three more chemos. Again, I knew that it was God carrying me along. I'm filled with a sense of gratitude towards God. Treatment could have been a lot harder and difficult, especially living on my own. It would be easy to feel miserable and worried, but I look at what God has given me, beautiful house, friends, family, and this church. I mean, I could go on forever, actually. <laughs> and, and, and can only have, as the song goes, a thankful heart. The coming years will be filled with uncertainty regarding my health, but what is certain is that with God's protection and healing, I will no longer be alone. Amazingly, my days are filled in a way that I could never have imagined, and I just can't stop thanking God. Thank you.
It's lovely to hear Chris's testimony, her story. But actually, I think for those that know her well as well, and I think that's probably most of us here, actually, she just exudes that Zoe life. She has been so positive, so full of love for Jesus, so trusting. That's not to say she's not had her wobbles and her hard times. Of course you have. But actually, you've been inspirational to many of us. So thank you, Chris. What I want to encourage us to do this morning is to go away and think about any areas in our lives. Think about it here as well if you want. But go away and think in the coming week about any areas in your life where you just feel, I'm being robbed of my abundant life. You have a right to that. You've been promised it. You can have it. Think about where you're being robbed and get down on your knees with Jesus. Speak to him about it and let him give you that abundant life. I think we need to be a people, don't we, who cling and cleave to him, come what may. And to really remember that Jesus is our shepherd. He's with us. He never goes away. He's always accessible. So even if you feel I'm going through a bit of a desert time at the moment, I can't hear him, I don't seem to connect, he's still there. And we know as well that when we can't pray ourselves, he'll be interceding and praying for us. He's always on our side. So remember that he is, I believe, the gate to life and the only gateway to real life. I want to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you came so that we could have eternal life with you. Life so much better than we could ever imagine here on earth. I thank you too that you came so that we can have rich life of the Spirit, deep, deep, fulfilling life, that we can experience a peace beyond understanding, that we can experience joy in your presence. I thank you, Jesus, that you are always accessible to each one of us, that you will never leave or forsake us, Jesus, I just pray that this morning that you will just touch those people here who need to really hear that and hear it afresh. And for those people who need to hear it maybe for the very first time. And Lord, I just pray for us as a church as well that we will be a church family that just radiate your love, your life, your light in this community. Help us, Lord, to support one another in that. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another. Help us, Lord, to challenge one another when we need to. Help us, Lord, to move forward in unity. In your name. Amen.